With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome to Inspired Conversations with me, Ruth Owen. Today my guest is Colonel Chris Gibson, MBE. Chris has had 34 years experience in military and government operations. He's taken a leadership role in special operations around the world, including 18 months in Beirut, trying to free Terry Waite, and working as a close protection officer in the Middle East during the Second Gulf War. He's also worked in Sarajevo and was in the Special Forces team during the Civil War in Sierra Leone. Chris then graduated from the NHS Staff College and won a postgraduate award in medical simulation management from Harvard University. He then became chief instructor of the Army Medical Services Training Center and led operations during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Today, he's a keynote speaker and speaks to professional sporting teams and business groups about his positive philosophy and winning leadership ways. So, Chris, thank you very much for joining us. You've been a busy man. Yeah, Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be and privilege to be with you today. And be really, uh, I'm really excited to see where the conversation goes and uh, explore some of the experiences I've had. So, yeah, thank you. Well, you've certainly had many, many experiences that people can only dream about. So we're going to come on to the fact that you are involved in the growth pod in North Yorkshire to encourage people to relax and take the stress out of their lives. But let's rewind a little bit and go back to your career in the army. So tell us a bit about when you were working in the special forces and how you came to lead the attack or if you like the war on Ebola when that uh, (laughs) hit, hit West Africa. How did that all happen? Well, I left school at 18, having massively underachieved. Uh, I'd concentrated on things that I liked, uh, which was predominantly sport, and uh, failed to achieve the results required to go to university. So I had a bit of a uh, pause and a reflection on what I should do, and um, I decided that uh, I would give the army a go. So I joined as a private soldier. I very quickly went away and did a, a specialized course and ended up being deployed 20 out to Beirut during civil war out there, which was a real baptism of fire, having grown up in a, a very rural village in central Scotland. So that took me on a journey of, of many deployments through South America, Central America, many African countries out to the uh, out to the Far East and uh, a lot of time in the Middle East and Balkans. So real extremes of humanity, some great experiences, some very difficult times. In Iraq, I got uh, quite badly injured and uh, again had that reflective moment of where I was going and what I was doing. And uh, I'd had a chance to patch up some children who uh, somehow I made better and uh, they recovered in, in the military hospital. When did they patch in, in up? Iraq. What do you mean? Were you, were you medically qualified? Oh, well, I'd done, I'd done a special forces medics course and some of that's quite advanced care because obviously we're deployed at reach on the far shore uh, mm. and not usually within first world medical support. But were you actually working as a medic in, in no. the army at that No, but we, but we always carry advanced medical equi- equipment for uh, with us. Right. So um, these, uh, poor children had been, um, these poor children had been shot up and uh, we came across them and they were in a bad way, but we were, were able to support them. So there, there were sort of two, two events really that led to this occurring. The children initially uh, and uh, the work we did in uh, getting them through that situation and then the, ac- the helicopter crash I was involved in, 
which I really uh, got quite badly hurt in, which gave me that reflective time to think what I was doing. And the military came in and said, you know, would you would you consider moving to become part of the Royal Army Medical Corps? So stay within the army, commission in the army, but change role and responsibility. So I didn't really have any concept or of what that would involve, but it sounded like an opportunity not to turn down. And what was the degree at this stage? So that would be about 34, I guess. Before that, were you a non-commissioned officer? Yeah, so I'd worked my way up through the ranks and was a a warrant officer at this stage. And then they offered me what was a late entry commission, which is when you were a soldier who then commissions. So I I was offered that and took it, not really knowing what, what it would lead to. But having been commissioned, I had to work out where I could make a difference. So I felt that I knew a lot about developing people and, and therefore I was sort of drawn to the training environment. But I had to learn, not being a qualified doctor, I had to understand how that learning could support those that were qualified, either nurses, doctors or, or medical technicians. So I took myself off and got a bit of an education, did a couple of master's degrees and then ended up going to Harvard to do a postgraduate in, in medical simulation. And from that, I ended up being posted into the Army Medical Services Training Center in York. And that training center, I believe, is the largest collective training, medical training organization in the world. So it takes whole medical components and trains them to be ready for deployment or held at readiness to deploy. And it, it does it through the creation of a, a repertoire of simulations but the environment that's built is a full facsimile of, of the environment they're going into. So, for example, Afghanistan, we built in York a complete replica of the hospital in Camp Bastion. So we could do full immersion training with those prior to deployment. So you were um, training um, medical staff in the army to, to deal with a war situation. I, I think that's a really good summary. It wasn't just British, though. So through this process we got the accolade of becoming international best practice for for medical training. So we ended up leading the way for America, ourselves, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand in this process that we developed in York. So it was and, a British and, version and, of, of MASH, but not quite so funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it had its moments. It's, uh, it really was um, a sight to behold because in medicine, you know, the clinician's journey is in development is in some way selfish, that they never look, train together. They only train in isolation, but they never work in isolation. So we in, in the military are really lucky that we can train collectively to create a really effective organization to deploy, to learn the lessons, to withdraw and retrain. And through that process, we developed, you know, world-leading trauma outputs. So the, the survival rate of patients going into Camp Bastion were higher than ever seen in the world before. That's amazing. So what, where was your expertise? Was it in training people to operate the uh, military unit as a cohesive team, or was it in developing the doctors and nurses and the medical staff themselves so that they were at their optimum? That's a great question. I think it's physics and chemistry. I think it's the hard and soft facets that make a, up an organization. So, you know, at the individual level, we, we make them fit to operate. Their fitness to practice is reviewed against their technical knowledge, skills and attitudes. 
So there's a repertoire of effect that was going on within military medicine may not be the same as that which is within their NHS trust because predominantly military medics work within the NHS. So that fit to operate piece we had to bring up at the individual level and then the survive to operate to bringing in and ensuring that the fitness to deliver that through, you know, creating psychological safety and, and individual well-being allowed them to really influence the outputs within the organization. And then once we got that baseline of getting the individual ready, we spent a lot of time in, in converging to operate where we built the team's departments around the processes and the equipment. And then from there, we got to the tip of the organization where we combined to operate, where the whole organization worked within a system of systems, whether that be HR, logistics, clinical output, the maneuver. How do you move patients on a battlefield from the point of injury back to the hospital and from the hospital back to UK? You know, all of that we exercised and, and, and worked on exceptionally hard, learning our lessons all the time. So, yeah, that's how we did it. It was really complex. Um, I think it was. But how do you simulate that when you're in a, a peaceful country and, and a very civilized place like York? How do you how do you organize all that and pre-plan? Yeah, it's a complex it's a complex world of collective medical training where there's a large number of enablers that are required to make that happen and a clinical faculty or a faculty which had clinicians but logisticians and HR and movers all within it to basically put the litmus paper into the organization, pull it out and see where it was running hot or where fracture lines were occurring so we could go in and repair it in flight. And this uh, collegiate and collaborative approach to fixing in flight was a way that we could build the training to replicate the reality of, of conflict. So we used indigenous population actors, we used soldier actors, we used amputee actors, we used child actors, we used helicopter simulators we used fixed wing simulators we used dog actors my dog even used was used as an actor <laughs> really because the dogs went into theater the same as patients and were treated exactly the same why did you treat dogs so dogs go out uh, as a key component of the military force they were used for explosive detection and drug detection and um, if a dog was injured, it would come in to the hospital as, as a patient and be resuscitated if it could be resuscitated as a human patient. It would then go to the veterinary clinic for surgery. We had to build the full repertoire of patient presentation into everything that we did. Wow. So the, the doctors and nurses had to be kind of vets as well. Um, yeah, we had vets out there, of course, but for resuscitation and CT scanning, you know, the doctors and nurses had to understand how to do that process, which would be not the norm. <laughs> it seems not. like everybody was, was highly qualified in, in a wide variety of specialist subjects, really. I mean, you'd never get that in a, an NHS setting, for example, would you? Well, you know, I can't decry the work that the NHS are doing and have historically done. It underpins the democracy that we enjoy within the UK. But what we created, I think, was a, a Formula One trauma centre, the likes of which had never been seen before. And we worked on those marginal gains that you hear in sport to improve and improve. And we moved from the national norm within the UK with regard to survivability to a, a standard that had never been seen before. Uh, and it surpassed anything that internationally had been seen before. So thank goodness the, the conflict in Afghanistan finished and we brought our people home. But if you went in in the latter stages as a patient to that facility, you had a 98.6% chance of coming home alive. 98.6%? 
Correct. No, no matter how badly injured the soldier Correct. was. Correct. That is extraordinary. And what what's so, the survival rate normally in, in an NHS hospital in the UK, for example? I haven't got that figure to hand, but if I recall, I, I, I'm really happy to be challenged on it because I'm not sure it's 100% correct, but it was in the 70 percentile region, I believe. But you've got to remember the demographic of the patient was also an advantage because the demographic in the main military patients coming in, although we did have indigenous population patients coming in, was young, fit men and women right. that had no underlying health conditions. So we had an advantage to work on. But nonetheless, it was a world-beating capability. So we knew, you know, we knew how to train, which put us in good stead for what came next, which was, I think, what you alluded to at the start of a conversation about the Ebola crisis in West Africa. Well, we'll come on to that in a minute. I want to dig a bit deeper into this because it's fascinating. When you say you were treating the local population in the Afghan hospital, were you treating soldiers from the other side, for example, who, who may have actually been attacking your soldiers? Yeah. You know, we work within the bounds of the Geneva Convention and those that need care need care. Uh, absolutely. So the moral question that, that, that asks of our people was hard. But it was the right thing to do because patients are patients and, and should be treated to the highest standard. And that absolutely happened within our capabilities. And what was the response of the Afghan freedom fighters or whatever they called themselves? How did they respond when they were? Yeah, I think there's a spectrum. I think there was always a spectrum of gratitude, which is understandable. I think that's absolutely true. But it was very hard for, you know, although it was absolutely the right thing to do to give the highest standard of, of care available to all that came within our doors, didn't mean it wasn't a challenge for the teams that were delivering it. And we worked hard on the ethics of that in training. You prepared all that before you went out there. Yeah, yeah, that, absolutely. Because if you can understand what the biggest challenges are, you can identify where the frailties and fracture lines may be. So you train your people to be prepared for those eventualities. Because it was Aristotle, I think, that said that excellence is a habit, not an act. And the more you practice, the better you get. Mm. So it becomes a muscle move after a while, and training blends into reality. You know, there's an adage within the military of train hard and fight easy. Uh, and I, I'm not sure I always go with that, but I think it does resonate on some occasions that I would say train hard and fight easier. It's never easy. <laughs> no, I'm sure it's not. But it seems to me that you spent as much time preparing the staff that went out to work in, in these hospitals psychologically as much as you did in, in the operation side of things and the practical side of things. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think you have to. There's three components to an organization. There's the, the physical, the conceptual, and the golden thread running through the middle is the moral component. It's the bit that gets your people to come to work every day. It's the bit that gets soldiers to cross the start line of, of a battle, knowing that the organization really cares for them and not understanding that the organization will have their back. And I think as, when I work with sports teams now, when I work with businesses, it's a component of high performance that is sometimes not taken into account. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. It's very easy to miss that bit out because people focus on the strategy and, yes. and the environment and not the people. I think it's coming. I think people are not acknowledging it. And perhaps this new world order we find ourselves in with COVID is, is allowing us to reflect on some of that and what's really important. 
you know, how important are offices nowadays? How important is that physical environment that we used to go to? Because actually lots of businesses that are, have been able to operate are operating fine with their people at home. Oh, yes. It's an opportunity for a reset on all levels, I think. So we'll take a short break and we'll come back in a minute. Be happy, be inspired. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Online, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is Inspire Radio. You know, we're all about helping make a positive difference to people's lives. We launched January 20th, 2020, and we now have listeners in 28 countries across the world. Maybe if you're a lifestyle brand, work in the areas of personal development, health and well-being. Maybe you'd like us to help share your message to the listeners of Inspire Radio, not just here in the UK, but across the world. If you would, just drop us an email, simply email steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Tell you what, let's enjoy a uh, cappuccino moment or green tree moment via Zoom. And let's have a chat. So once again, if you'd like to know more, just drop me an email, steve at inspireradio.co.uk. Let's help make a positive difference to people's lives across the world. Attention, please. We at Healthsplan would like to tell you something that, quite possibly, you didn't already know. Not all supplements are created equal. I know. Who'd have thought? We travel the entire globe to find the best ingredients for our vitamins and supplements, from the southern slopes of India for our turmeric to the cold, crisp seas of Greenland for our cod liver oil. Because that's the Healthspan way. Well, there you go. It's not every day you learn something new, is it? We're Healthspan. That's healthspan.co.uk. Vitamins and supplements, in-store or direct to your door. This is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Hello and welcome back to Inspired Conversations. I'm talking to Chris Gibson. Chris, before the break, we were talking about how you prepare your team psychologically and physically and and that elusive element, the moral compass, as you call it. Do you think that the NHS and other medical facilities around the world have had to dig deep and pull all those elements together in dealing with COVID-19 pandemic? I think it would be remiss of them if, if they haven't taken that opportunity. I think how prepared we were for it is really interesting. And I've been in and around some of the hospitals in the UK as this has been going on, and there's no doubt that uh, there was a bit of shock of capture uh, within the NHS when this came along. I think the individual and collective effort has been outstanding to achieve the levels of support for patients that, that they have in such a short period of time, given the shortage of essential equipment and trying to understand a virus that had never been seen before. So I think they've, they've done outstanding. I think there's going to be a huge amount of work to do as we come out of this, looking after that moral component that we talked about earlier and the well-being and support mechanisms that perhaps weren't as robust are you Within, thinking about the um, the support, the psychological support of the people in the NHS and whatever other medical organisations have been dealing with the pandemic? Yeah, I think the nature of healthcare delivery, you know, it has emotion within it. Not everyone survives that goes into a, a hospital. And I think, you know, that's tacit unknown within within the employment of the NHS. But some of the shock of losing colleagues is unknown in treating patients. And some of that shock will take a long time to level out and and the appropriate support mechanisms need to be developed if they're not there and widely accessible. We benefited it from the forces. We learned our lessons with regard to a more holistic approach to looking after our people. And some of those lessons would transfer 
quite elegantly into the NHS. And, and I'm sure they're looking at them, but uh, you know, I've not been party to that. But they should, if they're not, they need to be because I've seen the positive effect of having those interventions av- available and the negative effect of them not being there. Well, it was going to be a question that I came on to is, what do you think that hospitals and care providers can learn from the military and the operations that you oversaw and set up? Uh, There must be many, many lessons that in Sibby Street, we can benefit from from your expertise. Yeah, I think, you know, we hear hear this uh, say, this acronym of VUCA, this uh, leading in a VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, complex an ambiguous world. And I think we're relatively used to making decisions in the military within that because that is what going to war looks like. Probably much more difficult within health, within an NHS trust to create that leadership philosophy and make it stick. But I'm hoping the lessons have translated and will continue to do so. I know that the King's Fund are are working really hard on, on areas such as instilling a compassionate leadership philosophy which is one that I've always believed in and, and thinks is the most productive. So, you know, the work coming out of the King's Fund, I think is um, is really praiseworthy and, and hopefully it will stick. So there's a myriad of lessons that can be learned. It's how to titrate them in, in an appropriate manner, I think. So tell me about when you were operating uh, the hospital in Sierra Leone during the, um, was it Sierra Leone you were in when, when the Ebola outbreak happened? So I wasn't in Sierra Leone when the outbreak happened. I'd been in Africa in uh, Zaire, as it was, the DRC now, um, when a previous Ebola outbreak had happened when I was doing some special duties out there. And I'd been in Sierra Leone for a number of years during the Civil War, working with the Sierra Leonean government. So I knew the country, I knew knew some of the ministers, I knew the virus. I was still running the collective training centre back in York when this started to emerge as a threat on the horizon. And I was reminded of a quote by the Duke of Wellington who said, if we are not prepared to fight abroad, we better be prepared to fight at home. And I think with regard to Ebola and the way that it was starting to spread and emerge, I think it was absolutely right that we prepared to support a Commonwealth nation in its time of need. But we didn't know much in the military about infectious diseases. Our learning had all been around trauma in the last number of decades. So infectious diseases, although we had a number of consultants in infectious diseases and nurses, uh, senior nurses, Ebola was a new one for us. And its mortality rate being so high, it was one that, you know, we had a lot of trepidation about getting involved with. It must have been horrifying and, and terrifying and a really difficult thing to deal with. So how did you prepare your team to deal with such a, a virulent disease? We looked at what we did know. Um, and it was Donald Rumsfeld that said, you know, the, the, turn the unknown unknowns into no, known unknowns. And, and um, we tried to look at what we did know and we knew how to train. We knew how to build teams and we knew how to be successful in delivering care. Our task was to train, assure and deploy a UK standard hospital capability to the rigor of a West African jungle and deliver first world care. Not at all order then. <laughs> yeah in the most virulent virus ever seen on the planet, which had a which had a fatality rate of a in the ninety percentile range, with the government telling us that we could have a, a negligible casualty rate. You know, no casualty rates ever acceptable, but we, we were told we could have 
build this with with the minimal casualty rate of our own staff, which is what we always try to do. But it was binary. That's what we had to do. So how do you do that? And how do you create a capability that operates within those parameters? So it was a real challenge. <laughs> and so having wrapped our heads in sort of wet towels and put ourselves in dark rooms for a day, we had to sort of come up with a plan of, of how to do that and how to, I wanted a, a really good team around me of really clear thinkers. And I didn't want group think within the organization. I wanted to be challenged on where we went because this was so dangerous. This was a, a medical equivalent of a hostage rescue. We were going in, we were going into a really dangerous environment and we had to get this right. And we had to get our people operating in safety. So, yeah, it was a really hard task. How did you prepare your team for it? How did you prepare them for the fact that they had to be incredibly alert as to how to avoid collecting the virus and oh, yeah. themselves? So it was a complete, ch- it was back to the principles of first aid. Everything we'd learn about trauma with multi-faceted teams putting multiple hands on a patient in a real kinetic and dynamic environment had gone this was back to the principles of first aid of not becoming a casualty yourself and working the environment in a really slow and methodical way and what we had to work out was what was the highest level of first world care that we could deliver within that capability and once we worked that out we then understood how good we had to be and how much equipment we needed and what skill sets we needed and how we would train around that And then we started building the capability in the warehouse in York, and we built a complete facsimile of it. In fact, we actually designed the capability in York because we needed to understand how to work and what the maximum number of patients we could put within that facility and how long people could work within that environment of 40-odd degrees and 100% humidity uh, within PPE. And it was a much more restrictive PPE than perhaps you've seen with um, COVID. And, and how did we measure that time when people didn't have watches on? And how did we look after each other? And how did we communicate when, when you had a, a mask and a visor and levels of PPE on it? How did we get our surgeons to operate, our anesthetists to work when they weren't as dexterous as they had been previously because they were wearing multiple sets of gloves? So we had to practice it. We had to go through it in absolute minute detail. And every scenario that we could think of we created in simulation. So we used, again, all that repertoire of indigenous population actors, simulation dolls, simulation viral load, which we created from ultraviolet dye that would dissipate on contact with chlorine so we could track it. We could track it through the facility. We worked tirelessly on the donning um, of PPE and the doffing of PPE and we'd We'd body map people coming out of the facility so we could look at causality of infection contact. Uh, And then we could look at our operating procedures that we were developing to make them more resilient to stop that transfer of infection. And it goes on and on. But we we worked tirelessly within a really short timeline. Yeah, how much time did you have to prepare before you had to send the team and the hospital out? From notification to deployment, we had five weeks from a standing start well, in fact it was less than a standing start because we still had a, a replica of the afghan hospital within the warehouses so we had to rip all of that out and then design build develop operating procedures exercise assure uh, and sign off everything to say that it was ready to go so you so built what, it and shipped it as you had built it no in so we had a team forward projected out to sierra leone 
and and they were they were listening to what we were learning and they were building as we were learning so the role engineers were out there building as we were learning uh within training how many people did you actually treat at, at any one time how how many patients could you hold at one time it kept expanding so it started off as a 12 patient capability and it, it expanded and expanded i can't actually remember recall off the top of my head what what we eventually got to i, I do have a figure of what, how many people we trained to deploy we didn't become just a military center of training we became the national center for training so all those nhs staff that volunteered to go out we trained ngos from ireland denmark norway we trained the canadian military in total we trained over 1200 medical personnel to deploy out in in teams so we had them operating in teams and how many patients um, did you actually treat in the end do you know? hundreds 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 and and yeah. how many died it's a really interesting question in that with Ebola, there was three phases of the disease. And those that came in the earlier stages had a much higher survival rate. And as the epidemic was widening, like we see with COVID, um, there was a lot of effort to bring in novel treatment protocols. So as those treatment protocols and drugs were developed, we were able to trial those out there. And some of those were, were really successful. So the survival rates started to go up. But what you have to remember, if you can cast your mind back to that time, was there was no, like COVID, there was no successful intervention at the start of, of the outbreak. You know, our survival rates were good and, and widely published. They were much higher the quicker the patients could get to us. That's amazing. So you've been able to pass that knowledge on on how to deal with a virulent disease to other operations around the world. Yeah, we published, I think I've published a few books and bits and bobs in the BMJ and other academic um, circles and, and then sat on a national forum to try and um, ratify national operating procedures for infectious diseases, which hopefully some of it helped with uh, where we are today. Mm. So what's next? You started the Growth Pod with Emma Collar, your business partner, and uh, we, we spoke to Emma a little while ago. So what is your aim with setting up the Growth Pod? What are you aiming to do and who are you aiming it at? I think best way to explain this is go back to where I was. And when my race was run with the military, I, I felt that I had more to give than the military were providing the opportunity for me to deliver. So it was time for me to move on and try and share some of this learning within businesses, within sporting teams, how to create these high performing organizations. I'd been seconded by the uh, Ministry of Justice to help the then minister, Rory Stewart, with the culture of violence within the 10 most violent prisons in the UK. And some of that learning translated from the military into that, into that organization really, really well. And the results we got were really positive. So I knew that this was something that was viable, that it would be understood within businesses, within individuals and teams. So that was the catalyst for me to try and, and leave and set up this, this small consultancy we have. We want to grow individuals through coaching and individual development. And Emma predominantly looks at that. I'm, I'm really interested in teams and organizations and, and taking that helicopter or balcony view, finding the areas that need to be sustained because they're working exceptionally well and understanding those areas that need development. And having that critical eye from looking at multiple organizations through my career I feel that we're really good at it. I feel that I'm good at that. That's one of my strengths. I have many weaknesses, but that's probably one of my strengths. And having placed that philosophy 
within the Ministry of Justice and some of the organizations I was asked to support across government, such as uh, NHS trusts, I know that it, it would translate really well. And we try to put well-being at the heart of everything we do. I'm really passionate about psychological safety, about diversity, about all of the things I saw in the best teams in the military. And, you know, I was lucky enough to serve in or alongside, you know, the best that we had within defense. So, yeah, that is a quick summary of what we're hoping to do. And and some of that we've got moving now, which is great. And we're working with some businesses and we're working with uh, some elite and professional sports teams. So, Having started in November on the outbreak of a global pandemic to reflect back and think actually having had all of those (laughs) barriers in our way, we still got along the road to to where we want to be. Of course, there's there's space for more and I want to do more. I'm very passionate. It's not about the money for me. It's about the win. It's about taking something that's not working as good as it can be, be that an individual, a team or an organization and making it better, you know fulfilling the vision that they create is what I get my kicks out of. And what's your plan for the growth pod? You you were talking to me before the program about you wanted to expand the number of growth pods around the country, but what is it you can offer organizations and professional sporting teams when they come to the growth pod? We're currently set up in a, with our offices in a collaboration with a, a wellbeing retreat in Yorkshire around Broom and Rocks, which is a, which is a wonderful place. Uh, and something I think that people are realizing is, is massively important into being your better self. People have had time during this lockdown to reflect on their personal development and journey and, and where they can be better. And I think the demand now is recognized that actually well-being and, and all things well-being is really important. You know, And for me, there's lots of facets that make up well-being, but it's really good leadership that actually delivers it. And we would like to help teams and organizations shape that to better look after their people. So for me, I would like it to be a proven concept first and then move it to a franchise capability where we can have these in and around the country so people can have access to services and facilities that are not normally provided. Uh, You know, gyms do great jobs and the chains of gyms are hugely successful because people understand that the dopamine produced from success of achieving and endorphins released from from exercise are really important to, to their happiness. But actually, the well-being bit isn't done. So that investment in well-being through all of all of the things on offer at the ACORN and through the growth pod, I think there will be much higher demand for. That's my vision. That's where I'd like to get to with this. It's been a tough start around having <laughs> no bones about it, of setting up a business in November. But, you know, we're still going. It's it's probably the best time to start a business, actually. If you can survive this, you can can do well (laughs) when when things get back to normal. (laughs) You know, I'm always a half-full person, Ruth, and I think that um, this is absolutely an opportunity to prove the concept that actually how let's see how important people think this really is after this or even during it because it's going to go on for a while. And I think we've got an offer which people are starting to pay attention to. We we had to move all of our offer onto our e-classroom because of the inability to reach out in this physical distancing world that we find ourselves in. But our content, we've professionally um, developed. The other thing I'm really passionate about, being a widower, although I'm very happily remarried, was we want to do stuff for charity. And uh, we're hoping to partner with Macmillan to be able to support staff and patients that Macmillan are, are supporting with regard to well-being offers. And uh, initial conversations with them have been really productive, and we hope to, we really hope that we can do that because actually 
that's something that makes me feel fulfilled that we're giving something back. So uh, I'm hoping that we can take that to completion and, and, and start delivering on that one. That would be wonderful. So what form would that take? Would you have patients come to you at the growth pod or, or how? Well, yeah, initially that was going to be the case. But of course, you know, given the vulnerability, so we've created a, a virtual offer, a full repertoire of support around nutrition, meditation, coaching around anxieties and individual development. And that's all available uh, within our, our e-classroom. You know, people can approach us, of course, individually, but we, we hope that we can deliver this as a collective offering through Macmillan because I think that's where we can provide the biggest bang for the buck as such. It sounds amazing. Well, thank you very much for telling us and sharing with us all your ideas and your amazing experiences. Um, and if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that, Chris? Yeah, so um, really just through our website, which is um, www.growthpod.co.uk or through our email, which is um, chris at growth-pod.co.uk. You know, really happy to take any questions, really happy to to support wherever people uh, feel they need a bit of help in such difficult times. Well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and thank you for sparing us the time. I'm sure you've got lots and lots of things on your plate. It doesn't, like, it doesn't sound like you, you rest much on your laurels. You're always on to the next thing. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us and uh, good luck with the growth pod. My pleasure. Thanks, Ruth. Be happy, be inspired. With inspirational guests from across the world, this is Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio. Inspire Radio.